this episode for the bonus podcast. Sometimes I I do something different or experimental, just something that I might not do on the public podcast. And this this episode, this bonus episode falls into the category of personal. So I'm going to share with you something personal, which I'm not sure if it'd be a good fit on the public podcast. And what I'm going to share with you is why I don't drink alcohol. I've never been drunk, <laughs> and I think I basically have mentioned that on the public podcast that I don't drink and never have, but I've never explained it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't worry, I'm not going to ramble on about all my reasons, but instead I'm going to read you a story. story in my first year of college. So I was either 17 or 18 years old, and it was in the freshman writing class. I don't remember what the exact assignment was. It must have been something like tell something personal about yourself in a creative way. So I decided to write about why I don't drink alcohol. But my creative method was to put that into a partially fictionalized story to try to make it a little more interesting. So the setting of the story is a courtroom that is inside my brain. <laughs> my brain is trying to decide if I should accept an alcoholic drink from another person at this specific moment. In, in this courtroom inside my brain, there's two attorneys and there's a judge. The prosecuting attorney is my it. So the it usually represents impulsive behavior. So my it is the prosecuting attorney. And of course, my it is arguing for me to take the alcoholic drink and drink it. The defense attorney is my superego. And I, as far as I remember, the superego is supposed to represent your, your rational side or your, your do-good side, something like that. So, of course, my superego is arguing for me not to take the alcoholic drink. And then the 
judge in the case is my ego. And I think the ego is supposed to be the, the balance that you have between your id and your superego. So this is the story. What is also sort of funny about this is that we were also told to not use our real names for the when we pass in the story. So I used my middle name. So that worked out pretty good. So you'll hear Harris in the story. Alright, here I go. The title of this story is It's a Long Story. Now in session, all rise. The Honorable Judge Eco presiding echoed the bailiff. Both parties rose respectively. Judge Eco strode up to his bench and slowly lowered himself into his chair. Please be seated, he said in a placid tone. The room contained one large oak bench where the judge was stationed. The prosecutor and defense, each had a small wooden table and a wooden armless chair that made a distinctive scraping noise every time they stood up or sat down. There didn't seem to be any walls or a ceiling, just a soft, pulsing membrane with hanging tendrils surrounding them. The membrane glistened as the moisture exuded from its convoluted surface. Occasionally, a crackling noise paired with a bright flash sparked off the membrane. No one paid any attention to this befitting, strange environment. The occupants spent more time in this so-called resolution room than there were stars in the sky. After all, this room was their life. Judge Eco leaned backwards and darted his eyes back and forth while speaking to the prosecution in defense. Gentlemen, I'm sure you can guess what this is about. Being this a weekend, this is the tenth time we've assembled for this particular subject. I'm sure you both are getting tired of this subject, but you did decide to go to a very large undergraduate university that has lots of parties. You knew its reputation, so the least we can do is our respective job. Well, it seems our boy here is here is at another frat party. He's being handed a beer. Our task is to relay a decision to him as to whether he should accept it or not. Judge Eco nodded in the direction of the prosecutor. It, you will present your case first. I ask, please, that you don't stray from the subject use inappropriate language or behavior, and please, no comment. 
comments about the defense's mother this time. Eve nodded in agreement, but made a nasty gesture underneath the table. It rose, putting extra effort into forcing his chair to scrape loudly. He approached the front of the bench with his hands folded behind him and his head lowered. His narrow face always had a mischievous smirk placed on it. With one hand, it stroked his small goatee beard and peered through his beady eyes at the defense. Harris should be allowed to loosen up a little, to have an innocent beer now and then. Maybe a couple beers, or maybe even a few beers might do him even better. Even a shot of rum. Maybe you can have some pot, some ash, a couple amphetamines, some cocaine. It quickly realized he was getting out of hand and not helping his case any. He continued on a more level track. Everybody around Harris is drinking and partying it up. So why shouldn't he be able to? He'll feel out of place if he doesn't drink. He'll feel like an outcast. He'll feel like a mint tic-tac buried deep in a pile of horse manure. Judge Eagle raised an eyebrow at the analogy. One drink, just one drink, it would help him blend in, feel more natural. After this one drink, he can quit. A lot of people drink this way. It truly wanted to win this one, even though he had never won a drinking argument. But in this moment, Harris was being handed a Corona beer, and that is some expensive stuff. It continued with newfound motivation. Everyone at the university drinks, students and teachers alike. Presidents and famous leaders drank alcohol, and they handled it well. It is a universally accepted habit. Those who don't drink at all are seen as wimpy and afraid. Drinking can help one loosen up, relax, have a good time. All this from one object is not a bad habit, but a privilege. It allowed the word privilege to echo in their heads as he made his way back to his seat. Judge Eco clasped his hands together and called the defense. Super Eco, you may present your case now. Super Eco rose, taking care not to scrape his chair. He strode up to the front of the bench as it glared at him through demonic eyes. Super Ego turned in the direction of it and commented, Excellent presentation of your case. Very commendable. It stuck his finger into his own open mouth and made a gagging gesture. Super Ego was unfazed and went on with his presentation. There are many reasons 
try to touch on each lightly, taking care not to waste your honor's precious time. A muffled butt kisser was heard from the prosecutor's desk. Super Ego continued. Harris is paying for his entire education himself, hoping to continue into graduate school for an additional four years. Financially, he can't afford to support a drinking habit. Often, students complain that they spend their last dollar on booze. He also holds down three jobs to help pay his way through college, and he can't blow money or dime on getting drunk. From an academic standpoint, drinking would prove very detrimental. Harris is carrying 20 credits, and time is precious. To go to parties provides a good release of tension, but when he gets home or wakes up the next morning, he needs to be in top shape to study. Alcohol causes permanent brain cell damage, loss of memory, confusion, and hallucinations. In the heart, alcohol can cause high blood pressure and heart failure. Alcohol also causes severe damage to the lungs, the liver, the stomach, the pancreas, muscles, and intestines. In addition to all this, it is high in calories and carbohydrates with little to no nutritional value, resulting in excess weight gain. Genetic. A sudden thud interrupted his sentence. Judge Ego and Super Ego spun their heads towards the prosecutor it. Its head was face down on his desk and his arms dangled to the floor. A loud, fake snore erupted from his mouth, and drool trickled out the side. Judge Eco leaned back and silently nodded his head in dismay. Super Eco ignored it and continued with his case. As I was saying, genetic research has been done that shows a strong correlation that alcoholism is hereditary. Many of Harris's family members have had problems with drinking alcohol. Harris may not genetically be able to handle alcohol, and so some of his family members are an example of what could happen if he does start with that one beer. Super Eagle paused for effect and paced the floor slowly. It was presently sprawled across his desk, on his back. His arms and legs hung off the sides. A large fake knife protruded from his chest, surrounded by fake blood. A note was taped to the handle of the knife that read, Killed by Boredom. A stifled snicker erupted from the lips of it. 
suddenly lit up with bright flashes and loud crackling noises that came off the surrounding membrane. The pulsing of the membrane surface increased rapidly. All three parties frantically looked at the new excited activity of their encasement. Sorry to do this to you, Super Eco, Judge Eco said, but I'm going to have to ask you to wrap up your case soon. We need a decision quick. Harris's neurons are firing rapidly, and he's searching for a decision. Sorry, Your Honor, will do, agreed Super Eco. To finish my point, to this day, Harris has never touched drugs, nor been drunk, or even buzzed from alcohol. He receives a lot of respect and approval from his peers. Sometimes he does receive disapproval, but he's always felt that he's making the right decision. Harris accepts those who do choose to drink alcohol, because that is their choice in their life. They're not influenced by the same past, present, and future that he is. All he hopes in return is that they accept him for who he is. Super Eco returned to his desk and sat down quietly. Judge Eco shuffled through the papers in front of him, pondering a verdict. Super Eco sat there, complacently waiting for the decision. Judge Eco cleared his throat and spoke. I have considered both arguments in depth and reached a verdict. Though this was a long and laborious case, I commend both of you on your efforts. My decision is for the defense. A mumbled, big surprise came from the prosecutor, Id. Judge Eco walked over to a part of the glistening membrane marked Decision Sender. Judge Eco grabbed the appropriate terminal branches and joined it to the receiving dendrite of another neuron. The synapse sparked and sent the impulse on its way to its respective destination. He sighed a breath of relief. He was glad the case was over with. It had turned out exceptionally long, a total of ninety-fourths of one second. Georgico was exhausted. He stood there and tried to decide if he should pour himself a stiff drink. Or, maybe not. Back in the real world, Harris looked at the beer being handed to him, then looked his friend in the eye and said, No thanks. His friend looked at him curiously and asked, Do you drink? Harris replied, No. His friend inquired why. Harris breathed in deeply, smiled, and said, It's a long story.
Welcome to another bonus episode. I'm going to read another essay that I wrote in college. This one's a science fiction story I wrote when I was 18 years old, and it was part of an assignment in my freshman writing course. For the assignment, given one photo and one quote, and the assignment was to write a story that somehow incorporated the photo and the quote. The photo that I received showed a shirtless man standing like waist-deep in ocean water, looking towards the shoreline. On the shoreline was a large factory billowing out smoke. I posted a, a photo I just took of the exact image that I was given, and it's on the Patreon site under the list of posts. It's, it's not great quality. It was a photocopied image that I was given a long time ago. So that was the image. The quote I received was, No one, of course, even noticed he was missing. So I had to incorporate the quote and the photo into a story, and I decided to make it into a science fiction story. The story is about a human-like species called Duratians who live underwater in a domed world. The Duratian in the photo is leaving that underwater domed world as part of a special mission. something special in the above-water world. The Duration in the photo, his name is Suit, and his mission will hopefully save his species. Well, keep in mind that I was only 18 when I wrote this. So, as the product of a dreary-eyed freshman staying up late a couple nights to complete his assignment rather than the polished opus of a budding writer. Alright, here we go. The title of the story Chemical XX88. They all sat there in the dead silence, staring at each other across the large octagonal table. There were tall, multicolored fiberglass charts and maps built into the walls of the spacious room, and lights 
and untrampled, stretching from wall to wall. The black octagonal table shone like marble. Each one of the eight members sitting around it had several pieces of typed paper in front of them. The eight men looked grave and serious, which was accentuated more by the dim lighting. Their black cloaks seemed to correspond with the dense atmosphere that clung around them. One of the men was wearing a white cloak. He placed his outstretched hands on the coldness of the table and rose slowly. He looked down as if staring into the void of the deep black table. He raised his head and spoke. Gentlemen, as you know, we are the only colony of our kind that exists on Earth. We are nestled deep in the Atlantic Ocean. We are free and separate from the outside world, as they are ignorant of our existence. Our colony of Duration people evolved separate from humans at the physical rate at a much quicker intellectual rate. We've made many technological advances that they are just beginning to contemplate. These advances have always kept us many steps ahead of them, allowing us to consistently avert any means with which they could detect our Turat colony. Their lower level of intelligence has been shown their uses of nuclear weapons, dealings with world hunger, destruction of animal species, overpopulation, and general bedlam that they have thrown themselves in. Our life here has advanced so successfully because we are absent of blunders like theirs, and we know only peace and prosperity. Our life down here must never mix with the life up there because of obvious, catastrophic results. He lowers his head, staring again into the black void of the table as a thick, silent air swirls around his head. He raises his head and stares into the soft glow of the hanging light fixture above the table. His eyes slowly sweep across the table, glancing around at the seven pairs of eyes attached to expressionless faces. He continues, But now we have a problem. The dome that lies between our colony and the harshness of the dark blue ocean is weakening. Scientifically, it shouldn't be, for we've made it a thousandfold stronger than it need to be to stand pressure in time. But neither one of those are the problem. It is in its chemical component. There is some kind of chemical that is in the water which has never been there before, and naturally, it doesn't belong there. Our scientists 
have concluded that this new chemical, codenamed XX88, has been formulated by humans. From the Saurians, our special overworld research team that once every two years sends out a small task force to check out human development, we know of the latest human accomplishments. Some theories have suggested that it is the component of some new warfare weapon of theirs, possibly nuclear. We do have some trace elements of the chemical in our laboratories. What we need, though, is this chemical substance in its complete form. If this chemical continues to proliferate into the water, it can eventually destroy our colony. Once we have the chemical in its whole form, we can easily formulate a co-evasive chemical that would just filter out into our surrounding ocean and would render chemical XX88 inactive. He shuffles through some papers in front of him until finding one with a photograph paperclip to it. He holds it up and continues speaking. One of our Saurian task force members has been chosen for this assignment. His name is Commander Zoot. He's the best Saurian available. His mission is to go up to the overworld and bring back a whole sample of chemical XX88. The risk is large, but we have no choice. Commander Suit is the best in his specialized field. He's confident, bright, capable, and eager. We should have little to worry about, except time. Why me? Suit thought aloud, sitting in his bedroom. Sure, choose old Suit for a suicide mission. Why don't I just kill myself now and save them the time? He let out a big sigh and finished putting on his chromium silver boots. Once done, he continued to sit there on the edge of his bed and stare out the window. His eyes reflected the ice-blue hue that shone off the city. What bothered him most was that no one was to know of his absence, especially his family and friends. They were afraid of any kind of unnecessary worry or panic that it could cause. Oh, yeah, he mumbled into the air. No problem. Just go up to the overworld and bring back some sample of some XX-88 gunk. The words echoed in his head. For all they care, that could be a component of a warhead to one of those insane human ICBM missiles. Suit stood up and walked over to the open window, leaned his head out, and took in a deep breath. The refreshing cool 
was taken for granted. The fresh air of the Terracian colony. The first time he had gone to the overworld, he had gagged on the air. The memory was permanently imprinted on his mind, like a groove on a record. He remembered surfacing from the water, looking straight ahead, and seeing a large factory puffing out what looked like billowing clouds of smog. He knew he would miss the cleanliness and familiarity of his own city. There were some aspects of his job he loved, such as telling of all the cities he had seen that were not accessible at the Asterlite Library. Every Terrat knew what the overworld was like through pictures and books contained in the Asterlite Library, but to experience it was totally different. Oh, but wait, Zoot better hurry. They were waiting for him in Section D4. Sure enough, back in Section D4, they were wondering what was taking him so long. He was already 15 minutes late. They had prepared everything for him. Civilian clothing, human money, a map of his designated area, an XX-88 Ector. It gives the proximity and coordinates of the chemical that contains the same subatomic particles as those found on the dome, and an aquavet which would transport Zoot to his land destination. The double doors across the room flew open, and Zoot appeared. They quickly prepared him. No one spoke, for everyone knew time was of the essence. Zoot climbed into the aquavet and harnessed himself in. The large wall in front of him slid up, revealing another chamber with more water. Zoot closed the top capsule door and slowly drove the aquavet into the exit chamber. The large wall behind him closed shut, and another wall in front of him opened up. Water gushed all around him, submerging the aquavet completely with glistening blue water. He sat there and wondered how people would react to his absence. But then he remembered that no one, of course, would even notice he was missing. Suit sped out of the exit chamber and into the darkness of the deep blue ocean. He examined himself. Blue jeans, a red plaid shirt, and white Nike tennis shoes. Thank goodness they specialize in research and not in fashion, Soup mused. He felt for his wallet, found it in his back pocket and went through it. His ID read, Lester Garnby, age 34. They sure pick some winner names. He sneered aloud. He flipped the wallet over and eagerly opened it lengthwise. A hundred bucks, that's all. Cheap bums. They 
anticipated his return within 24 hours. But still, how'd they expect him to have any fun on a measly hundred dollars? He checked to see where his coordinates were taking him. Looking at his map, it appeared to be a place named Cape Cod. Great. Sounds like an oversized fish market. Sue mumbled under his breath. He stared ahead, out into the vast blue ocean, as the water sped by his windshield. Upon reaching his destination, anchored his aquavet to the bottom and swam to the surface. He broke the surface and glanced towards the shore. He was only a short distance from a jetty. He swam towards it laboriously, for the jeans and shirt made it very difficult. Few people were on the beach, as it seemed to be early in the day. He climbed up onto the rocks at the end of the jetty and rested. He scanned the shore. No one had seen him. Good. I guess that's why I'm the best, he boasted to himself. On the shore, a young boy watched the fully dressed stranger pull himself out of the water and sit down on the jetty's rocks. He buried his feet further into the sand as he peered at his mother playing with his little sister at the water's edge. He swung his eyes back to the strange man on the jetty. It was hard to see him distinctively, but it appeared that the man was wearing jeans with a very ugly plaid shirt. Someone the boy chuckled to himself should fill this guy in on how to dress himself. The boy looked all around the beach. He seemed to be the only one noticing the strange man. The man was now walking jauntily across the jetty towards the shore, then walked up and disappeared into the parking lot. Swimming with clothes on, peculiar, the boy thought. But as the theme song of his favorite TV show said, different strokes for different folks. Suits stood at the far end of the parking lot, his clothes still very wet, and the cold dampness clung to his skin. He hoped the warmth from the overhead sun would quickly dry them. He took out his XX88 Ector and scanned the area in a circle. He was getting strong readings from up the road. Suit put the XX88 Ector back into his pocket and started down the road. He soon came to a small town. He walked up and down the sidewalks, checking out the primitive sorts of gadgets humans were still using. Suit smiled, nodding his head in dismay. He rounded the corner and stood on the side of a large brick building. He glanced around. No one seemed to be taking notice of him. He again took out his XX-88 Ector and received strange readings 
It seemed that the dangerous chemical was all around him. Readings were coming off people and buildings alike. This was odd, for the people were contaminated, but showed no signs of discomfort. Well, at least Zeus thought, it is not going to be hard to get a sample, for the building across the street gave off the strongest reading. He checked his pockets for the container to bring his sample back in, found it, and hurried across the street. Zoot took in a deep breath and entered the building. Back at the colony, the Derrick scientists were still puzzled by chemical XX88. They were deeply counting on Zoot to bring back a whole specimen. The secret of the dome structure was in its highly stable magnesium bonds. These bonds tightened harder upon pressure of a greater outside force. It seemed, though, that the derivatives of chemical XX88 revealed two possible structures that of carbonic acid and formic acid. When these two acids combine, they create a highly volatile oxidation-reduction reaction. In this reaction, carbonic acid oxidizes magnesium and formic acid reduces it, weakening the magnesium bonds. It is also known that the carbonic acid and formic acids are derivatives of methanol. This is where they were worried about the success of their plan. Methanol can form explosive mixtures, and it is used in rocket fuel. Soot may have a hard and dangerous time obtaining something of that sort. They figured, though, that chemical XX88 was just another one of humans' inane attempts to solve a world problem before checking out the complete effects of their final product. It could be a new nuclear explosive derivative, a new pesticide, or just about anything. All they knew is that the chemical XX88 was very new and presently weakening their protective dome. The Aquavet approached the colony and entered. The exit chamber door closed behind him. The excitement filled the air as the scientists and researchers stood around the Aquavet. Suit opened the top capsule door and clambered out. He handed the container to the head scientist and strided out of the double doors, confident he had completed his task. Now that they had chemical XX88 in its whole substance, they could break it down, find out its complete structure, and create the coevasive chemical. The head scientist opened the container carefully 
Inside was a peculiar blue packet. Using tongs, he lifted it up and read the outside. Nutrisweet. science fiction story, which of course is mostly fiction, but I did throw in a little genuine science in there. It's all that gobbledygook I wrote about how this chemical could be breaking down their dome was actually based on some information I had read about NutraSweet. I found some sources that did say that NutraSweet can deteriorate into methanol and that methanol is used in rocket fuel and that methanol breaks down into carbonic acid and formic acid and carbonic acid is a high oxidizer magnesium and formic acid is a high reducer of magnesium. So, just a pinch of science thrown in with a lot of fiction. Welcome to another bonus episode. I've mentioned a couple times before on other episodes that I've been trying to hunt down and find these letters that I wrote a long time ago. And the bad news is that I haven't found them yet. But the good news is I did find this short story that I I wrote in, in high school. And it's just a, it's handwritten and it's on paper. It's only about two and a half pages long, or two and a half pages short, so it's not very long. It is also a a horror story, which I I don't. It's not my preference at all to to read to you to help you to fall asleep. So I I definitely wouldn't read this on the public podcast. But because I do a lot of experimenting and trying different things, and even usually warn you that it may not be relaxing, I thought, well, some of you may enjoy a little horror story. And it is not graphic. Uh, There's no violence in it. There is mention of, I think, like some yelling or screaming. But overall, it's more of a suspense story. So, why did I write this story in high school? I wrote it as an assignment in my psychology class in my senior year. I don't remember why I was writing 
psychology class, like why this general topic, all I remember is that the, the instructor of our class was offering bonus points if you wrote a story. And so I don't know, I just don't remember why I wrote. Like, I don't think he said that it had to be a horror story. I don't know. So, I just remember that I wanted some bonus points in the class, so I was going to write this story. An interesting, an interesting thing happened after I turned it in, which is the teacher of the class had graded all these bonus assignments or bonus stories, and he was walking, uh, handing them back out, walking in class, and he, he handed me this story back to me, and I, he gave me full credit on it, and he leaned forward and looked at me really seriously, and he said, did you really write this? accusing me of copying this story from somewhere, and I hadn't, so I said, yes, I wrote it, and he just looked doubtful, and I just knew at that moment that he had just given me the best compliment he could have given me on this story I wrote. I don't think that was his intent. I think he really thought I, I didn't write it, but because I knew I had, I just felt so flattered that he thought that I had copied this story from somewhere, and I, I don't think it's that amazing of a story at all. It's, it's just something I, I thought of, and I thought it'd make a, a good little horror slash suspense story. All right, here it is. It's called The Old Lighthouse. And it's only about two and a half pages long, so pretty short. The two boys, Colin and Dirk, stared at the giant lighthouse in the darkness. It loomed ominously over them in defiance of the many years of storms and harsh weather that were etched into its surface. The light went round and round dimly, just bright enough to cut through the heavy fog. Dirk readjusted the toad strap on his shoulder that was holding the beers. Colin and Dirk had decided to bring some beers to the old lighthouse, have a little party by themselves, then sleep it off until sunbreak. Colin turned the rusted knob of the door that entered into the bottom of the lighthouse. Dirk followed him in, mentioning that it seemed much bigger on the outside than it really was. 
the concrete floor was dirty, but otherwise bare. There was a concrete staircase that wound up the walls, stretching up into the darkness. Colin dropped his sleeping bags in the middle of the floor. Dirk set up a candle near the wall so they could see better. The light shone on the cracked, cold, round wall that surrounded them. After getting settled, they decided to venture up the stairs to the top. They each grabbed a beer, and Colin also grabbed the candle, and they headed up the stairs. They sipped their beers and slowly climbed the spiraling staircase. After several minutes, they reached the top. The light of the candle revealed a large wooden trap door. Colin slowly pushed it upward, and Dirk climbed up after him. They had expected the light to practically blind them, but they found it hard to suppress the laughter at the brightness of it. They both could stare into it when it came around without even having to blink, not wanting to be noticed and have their plans ruined. They climbed back down. Dirk threw Colin another beer to polish off as they laughed at the wretched condition the old lighthouse was in. Dirk and Colin laid on their sleeping bags in the center of the room with the candle between them. The light cast flickering shadows and images as the two drank beer after beer. Colin felt lightheaded and mentioned to Dirk that something was strange. Dirk continued to laugh at him and threw him one of the few beers remaining, telling him to shut up. Colin remained serious. Then Dirk heard it too. A low rumbling sound. The candle flickered, then went out. Colin searched frantically for the matches in the darkness, but it was in vain. Dirk tried to find the door to find the source of the sound. Getting panicky, Dirk ran along the round wall, searching for the door, but he couldn't find it. Colin joined him in deep fear also trying to locate the door. They both ran around and round with their hands along the wall, but the door seemed to have disappeared. They soon realized they had never bumped into the concrete staircase. They screamed in terror as the wall constricted in jerks. Colin and Dirk felt the wall as it closed in on them. It was warm and pulsating. They huddled together in the middle of the room. 
as the wall closed in on them, closer and closer. From the outside of the old lighthouse, mysterious screams and wails could be heard from within. The outside of the old lighthouse was slowly rejuvenating itself as the cracks and the chip paint disappeared. The lighthouse now hardly showed its age. Rather, it looked new and radiant. The light that went round and round now shone brighter than ever as it stretched forever into the mist. A low, satisfied, guttural burp erupted from the center of the new lighthouse. episode for you to nipple on, I guess. <laughs> Alright. Good night. And maybe queue up another longer, more relaxing episode to fall asleep to. Welcome to another bonus episode. episode, which was a, a horror story with something a little more light and, I guess, even silly. Something of a, a, a palate cleanser, I guess. <laughs> so I think this might be a, a good little, little palate cleansing episode. It, it's also going to be short, similar to the horror story. It is something that I've written, and I wrote this in my first year in college in a creative writing class. It's a short essay, and I, I think the assignment had to writing something about yourself, about your personality, and you're supposed to share something about yourself. So, I wrote about being a pack rat, which now is, I guess it's kind of funny to me that at the age of, I must have been 17 or 18 years old when I wrote this, that not only did I know what a back rat was, but at that young age, I, I thought that I had the traits of a back rat. That 
of soap, melt them together. It's more like, why throw it away if it can be put to good use? Beer bottles, trendy vases. But I do throw things away all the time. stirrers, 
others make fun of me because they're jealous. Potato sacks, one size fits all. They wish they could only be as thrifty as I am. Rip shirt, dust rag, and some are. Rip jeans, it's a fad. I've heard that people say my house is a junkyard. Elastic bands, enough to choke a whale. But my house is a genuine haven of forgotten treasures. It's my own personal Smithsonian. I am very picky as to what I save. Empty paint cans, cooking pots. I have rigid qualifications as to whether or not to save something. Old candy bar wrappers, wallpaper. If I'm going to throw it away, I save it. That's my qualification. Cracked paper plates. Tape them up. My lifestyle saves me a lot of money. Used Q-tips. Wash them. I'll soon have enough money saved to put an addition on my house. Dirty disposable cups. Clean them. Space might still be limited, though. Old magazines. 20,000 and growing. Literally. But hey, I'm frugal enough. I can afford a couple of additions on my house. People can go on making fun of me and calling me a pack rat. Chewed gum. Gum sculptures. But all I know is that I'm happy. Trash bags. Never need them. Hey, you're not going to throw that away, are you? Sorry, that's, that's the end of my little essay I wrote when I was in college. And I hope that was a, a light and silly buffer to the little horror story. Alright, that's all. episode. In this episode, I'll be reading you letters that I wrote in college. These are those letters that I think I initially mentioned a year ago, or maybe it was two years ago. 
these letters were somewhere in a box at my parents' house. And then I went looking for them, and I couldn't find them. And then I finally found them. The, the ones that I'll be reading to you today were written during my first year of college. So I was 17 years old when I started college, and then in my first semester, I turned 18. So these cover that span. These are letters that I wrote to my family and friends, just telling them about my college life and I guess some other ramblings. Now, it's, it's curious because today you or I would probably write an email and we'd have a copy of our email in our send box. But way back in my college days, email didn't exist. So it was mostly handwritten letters. Now the obvious downside of letters is that you didn't have a copy after you mailed them, except I did, because I either photocopied my letters before I sent them, or I used carbon paper, which made a copy of them as I wrote them. I've picked out several letters throughout my first two semesters of college, and I'll try to skip over the more boring or tedious parts and overall keep your expectations low. This is, these are just letters updating family and friends about college, so they're not super exciting, which is somewhat good, because then it's easier to fall asleep. And I'll, I'll also try not to read anyone's real names for, for their privacy sake. sitting on a bench 
next to the campus duck pond. It's kind of nice and peaceful. I've been going to some parties, but I still don't drink. I have a blast. The people up here are really cool, and I rarely get any kind of guff for it. The food here isn't bad at all. It's usually a good selection. I've been back home twice. I like going back home to visit. It's a good change of pace. I'm not going back again until Thanksgiving break. So far, I'm still paying for everything myself. Knowing that I should have some kind of income while I'm here, I started my own business. I call it the odd job service. I do yard work for houses outside campus. So far, it's going well. Sunday, I raked this woman's lawn for four hours, and she gave me $50. I was psyched. Right now, there's a swan a foot away from me. I don't have anything to feed it, so it's just standing there staring at me. I've never been this close to a swan before. Anyway, all in all, it's going great for me. Write me and fill me in on all the angles of your life. I look forward to your letter. Your good friend. So that's the the core of the first letter. I I skipped over parts where I asked him about how so and so doing and do you remember that time that so and so did this and that and so these are um, just mostly excerpts from these letters. This next letter that I'll read parts of is dated November 18th, and this is a few days after my birthday, so I've now just turned 18, and my mother had sent me a, a box of gifts. So this letter is to my mother, and in it, I'm thanking her for the gifts. The letter begins, Hi, Mom. How are things going? This is weird. I don't think I've ever written you a letter, but it's much cheaper than a phone call. I'm really glad you called me on my birthday. It meant a lot to me. Thank you so much for the presents. I appreciate them all. My toothpaste actually ran out today. Are you psychic? Oh yeah, I forgot. All mothers are psychic. And my present toothbrush is looking pretty scraggy. So the toothbrush will definitely come in handy. And thank you also for the mouthwash. I love the shampoo package. I always need shampoo. You know the way I go through it. I don't always use conditioner. 
So what I'll do is I'm going to save the conditioner for special occasions when I want to look extra nice. I'm psyched about the gel. I almost went out and bought some a while ago just to experiment with it. I can always use the hairspray for when it's windy out. And wow, you send me new underwear. I forgot what that looks like. Oh, what's this? Socks without holes. How do I use them? It's nice to have socks without holes. We played the Jeopardy game on my birthday. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. I also love the sweater. It's really nice. All my friends liked it too. Is that a sigh of relief I hear? I like the Oxford also. The cologne, of course, will come in handy. And my deodorant was running out. So that came in handy also. The book's looking interesting, but I'll have to find time to read them. Well, once again, thank you. As you can see, everything is appreciated. Well, if you get some time, write me. Let me know how things are going on. Lots of love. I skipped over the parts where I give her updates on my friends who she knows and how they're doing at their colleges. Next letter is dated December 12th, and it's to a friend back home, and I got to know her because she lives in the same neighborhood as I do. Here's how the letter begins. Hey there, I'm real sorry I haven't written in a while. I try to write at least a letter a day or every other day to someone, but I haven't written to anyone since November 18th. I hope you had a wonderful birthday. I'm sorry I didn't send you a birthday card. I'm short on money and time, but that's really no excuse. I had an exam on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday and Friday, and some were final exams. All I did was study. But when I'm home for Christmas break, which will be December 21st through January 28th, I'll make it up to you. Thank you so much for the card you gave me. I loved it. And yes, I'll keep smiling. Thank you. Here's an interesting tale of something that recently happened in my dorm. A while ago, my roommate and I got a tap put on our phone because we're always we're getting these crank phone calls. Someone would call, then hang up when we answered. So we got it tapped. Well, yesterday, we found out who it was because they caught the person doing it four times. It turned out to be a woman who lives five doors down 
I guess yesterday a detective policeman went into her room and read her rights before even telling her what she'd done. She started crying because I guess she was scared. He then came into our room and asked us if we wanted to press charges. We said no. So he told her. Then he left. Late last night she came up to me and apologized and said she felt real bad. I just told her that I wanted her to know we weren't mad at her. The calls were just annoying. And my roommate had thought that it could be some guy who used to threaten his sister over the phone. I mean, heck, if someone was going to crank us, they could at least tell us a joke or something. Make it a little more fun. Anyway, take care, and I'll see you soon at Christmas break. I skipped the parts in the letter where I ask about and chat about the other people who live in our neighborhood. The next letter is dated February 10th. So Christmas break is coming on. And now I'm back at college in my second semester, my first year. This is, is actually a card to my mother. And I, I think she had sent me some, because it's about Valentine's Day, some candy and Valentine's Day candy and cards. So I'm thanking her for that. And I think she might have informed me about this time that my stepfather and her were getting a divorce. So that's mentioned in here also. And then I just ramble on about some school stuff. The card begins. Mom, thank you so much for the candy and wonderful cards. They were much appreciated. I was the only one on my floor, in this hundred people on my floor, to receive a Valentine card and presents from home. Thank you so much. And also, thank my little sister for me for the magazines. I'm so sorry I didn't stop by right before leaving to come back to school. I forgot. Sorry. I will take your advice and keep in touch with my biological father. And do please keep me informed on the outcome of the court matters. You predicted my next planned home arrival accurately. It will be spring break. My break is from March 19th the 27th. I'll probably see if I can work that week. I'm definitely studying harder this semester and carrying heavier load. Last semester I had five classes which was 16 credits. This semester I have seven classes and that's 20 credits. I need a total of 120 credits to graduate 
so I'm ahead of the game. If I carry exactly 15 credits a semester, then it works out to 120 credits after four years. And right now, my total credits, including the three I have from my advanced placement biology course, is 39 credits. Oh, update. I got my car fixed. Yahoo. I'm picking it up Friday the 12th. I miss you lots. I love you. The next letter is dated February 20th. And it's to this older husband-wife couple who are customers in this restaurant that I worked at before I went to college. So they were just this really nice couple and I cooked in the kitchen in this restaurant. And I don't know why they were always so nice to me, but whenever they were there as customers, they asked for me to come out and they want to say hello to me. And then when I went off to college, they would occasionally send me little care packages and goodies to me at school. So it was, they were just so sweet. And so this is a letter to them. The letter begins, Hi guys, how are you doing? Things are going really well up here. I have a really full schedule this semester more classes than last semester. I'm carrying so many credits that I had to get written official departmental approval to be able to have this big of a load. Today I applied for 15 jobs in town. Money is starting to get scarcer, so I figured I should get a job. Hopefully, one of these 15 job opportunities will pull through. I'm looking forward to it because I do miss working. Thank you for all the food you sent. Those breads were gone in a wink. They were so good. The food is coming so handy, especially when I'm up late studying and I get hungry. Thanks again. I also love my new leopard bathroom wraparound towel. I'm sorry I didn't get to spend too much time visiting with you during winter break. I spent almost all of that vacation time working, but I did make a lot of money, so it was a vacation well spent. I've been keeping out of trouble, mostly. I'm buckling down studying. Now if I get a job, that will ensure I stay out of trouble. Well. Maybe not. I have some homework to get to, so I have to go. My next trip home should be spring break, March 18th to the 27th. I hope to see you then. With love. I skipped over some parts of the letter where I ask about the other employees and some of the other customers and 
chit-chat about the restaurant stuff. The next letter is dated February 21st, and it's another letter to my mother, and I'm sharing a more detailed update about the job hunting that I've been doing. The letter begins. Hi, Mom. How are things going? Pretty good here. I applied for some jobs in town. One place hired me today. It may be like the most popular restaurant bar around here. I start Wednesday as a frontline cook. Cool, huh? A lot of my friends can't believe I'm working there because it's so hard to get a job around here. The head cook was impressed with my typed application, cooking background, and my interview I think went well. He told me that when I come back next fall, after summer break, that I could pick up where I left off. Another restaurant also hired me as a cook. I told him I was feeling out some other jobs to see which one I liked the best. He said that was fine and said for me to come in and work on Thursday if I wanted to to see how I liked it. So, I'll go after the job with the better pay and the better future. And wait, there's more. Tomorrow, I have an interview with the head cook of another large restaurant. Also, four other businesses told me to come back and check on Monday, which is tomorrow, and three others to come back on Tuesday. In the long run, I hope to get the job that overall suits me the best in all aspects. I still have my own business. Did I tell you about that? I call it the odd job service. Well, anyway, I started it last semester off campus, and I still have it this semester. Right now I'm in the middle of painting the whole interior of this woman's house. She pays really well. I've done some other work for her, like raking and edging, and she's never paid me less than $10 an hour, and she forces me to eat her food. All right, so she doesn't really have to force me. In the spring, she's going to get an estimate on how much it'll cost to paint the outside of her house, then have me paint it and pay me that amount. I'm also applying to be a resident assistant next semester. I'll be the floor supervisor, sort of. I'll get a free single room and $25 a week. It sounds like a logical and practical job. And as you asked, of course, I would be willing to be a witness for you in any legal proceedings as the divorce goes through between you and my stepfather. Do fill me in on all the latest developments with you too, legal and domestic. Also, thank you for the self-addressed stamped envelopes. They were very appreciated. 
appreciated. It is 2.45 a.m., so I should ponder the idea of sleep. All right, well, I gotta be getting going. I loved your card and note. Write again soon. Lots of love. The next letter is dated March 5th, and it's another letter to my friend back home who lives in the same neighborhood as I did. And in this letter, I give her an update about my jobs and some stuff about my car. And then I also address a situation she shared with me about something going on with her boyfriend. The letter begins. Hey, I loved your letter. I was so glad to hear from you. I'm sorry it's taken so long to write back, but I've been more busy than ever. I currently have three jobs, and I'm trying to get good grades. It's pretty hectic. I've given up all my social time. I haven't been to a party in a long time. My three jobs right now are number one, my own business I started last semester, the odd job service. Number two is cooking at this casual little restaurant. It's really easy. I work till 3 a.m. though. And the third one is cooking at this huge restaurant. Um, a frontline cook there. It's, it's really nice. The menu is over 10 pages. And there's just so much to learn. The first night I worked, we did over 400 people. So, business there is quite good. It also has a dance floor, a disc jockey, a pool table, video games, bouncers, and a huge bar. I don't know if you know yet, but my mother and stepfather are getting divorced. I can tell you more about that the next time I see you. My car was fixed for three days, and then it broke again. Tomorrow I'm going to get it. My fuel line was broken. And then overnight, someone broke my window. It's all fixed now, but it cost me $200. My sister called me a couple nights ago, and we had a really good talk. Hey, feel free to call her. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. I'm sorry to hear about the situation with your boyfriend, or your ex-boyfriend. You took a big chance and lost. I'm very proud of you for it, though. It shows you are caring, loving, sweet, giving, and mature. Don't see it as your loss, but his loss 
because he may never be as lucky to have another woman like you care for him again. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again. You are very mature, and a lot more mature than other people you know and I know. So, you must learn to accept these people as they are, I guess. It is just very hard to change people without screwing yourself up somehow. Time, sometimes it's always the best solution. Your grades are looking fantastic. Keep up the good work. I'll be home for spring break soon, March 19th to the 27th. It is past midnight now, and I have to get up at 8 a.m. tomorrow. Drive over two hours. Then drive back here for another two hours. Then go to work at 4 p.m. to 11 p.m. And then wake up early Sunday and spend all day painting the inside of a lady's house. So, I gotta be getting going. I'll look forward to hearing from you soon. Take care. The last letter that I'll share is dated August 14th. So my first year of college is over. And I'm back home working and earning money for my second year of college. This letter is my older brother, and it's kind of curious because we, we've never met, so this letter is one of our initial correspondences, and so I just end up kind of sharing a lot about myself with him, and he's doing the same in his letters we're getting to know each other through letters. The letter begins. Hey, big brother. I apologize extremely for the lightness of this letter. I give you permission to kick my bum when we meet. Funny, we're going to look more like adversaries than a couple of brothers meeting for the first time. But I'm still looking forward to it. I kept putting this letter off. No real big excuses like my state declared war on another state and I was drafted for several weeks. Nah, I'm just a procrastinator. I'm truly sorry though. Well, in spite of not writing you, I'll fill you in on what else I've been up to. Mostly working. Here's my weekly schedule. On Wednesdays, I paint from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then I cook at a restaurant from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. On Thursdays, I paint from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Then again, cook at a restaurant from 2 to 10 p.m. On Fridays, I mowing from 
Saturdays, I start cooking at 8 a.m. to noon, and then again continue cooking at a restaurant from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. On Sundays, not always, but sometimes, I do some painting from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. On Mondays, I paint from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then cook from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. And Tuesday is my off day. I always reserve Tuesday as my off day, and sometimes Sunday falls into that same category. Just depends how lazy I feel. So I'm painting a friend's house by myself. That is why I must put so much time into it. The mowing that I do is for my neighbor's yard. It usually consists of mowing, trimming, weeding, and using one of their trucks to haul a few bags of trash to the dump. If I work hard at it, I can finish everything in two and a half hours, and they always pay me sixty dollars. Well, that's my work life. Let's speak into my play life. Not much has happened the last week, except a pool party and a road trip to New Hampshire. What a disaster that was. My friends and I were sitting in my room, deciding what to do on my only day off. I said, road trip. So we all piled into my car and headed to New Hampshire. Our destination was a huge water slide, and it also had an alpine slide at this water park. For the whole ride, we went through spurts of good times and getting on each other's nerves. It took about four hours, but we knew it would be well worth it. We rounded the corner to the entrance with incredible amusement in our eyes and grins ear to ear. It was closed. <laughs> yes, it was just like National Lampoon's vacation, and we just arrived at Wally World. We were quite upset about it. Oh well, live and learn. I also went to a couple of concerts. I doubt they will get your approval. Let's see, it was Def Leppard with Europe and Judas Priest with Cinderella. They were all awesome. I've only been to three concerts in total. The other one I went to last summer was Motley Crue with Whitesnake. Yeah, you guessed it. Your little brother is a metalhead. Now, I don't wear leather, and I don't wear black concert t-shirts. A lot of my friends are surprised when they find out I listen to heavy metal. I often get the remark, you don't look or act like a metalhead. I listen and enjoy also to top 40 music off the radio. But I only buy heavy metal cassettes. Like Kiss, Dokken, ACDC, Tesla, Grim Reaper, Iron Man. 
Maiden, except Metallica and Black Sabbath. Those are just some examples. I own about 60 cassettes. Lately, after work at night, a couple of friends and I go dancing at a club. It's good to get down and loose after working for 11 or 12 hours. The only movie I've seen in over a month is Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. It was funny. Well, those are the highlights of last month. You asked about what sports I like to play. I like to play lacrosse. I played in high school. I like hacky sack. Maybe not really a sport. I like playing racquetball. I've been playing a lot of tennis this summer. And I always enjoy swimming. There are other sports I like to play, but I don't do it often, and I'm not very good at them, like basketball and volleyball, football, frisbee, soccer, and baseball. I've never played squash, and I've never played golf, except for driving ranges and miniature golf. I definitely adhere to your longing to play any sport at any time. You also asked about music. Ah, uh, yes. I can't live without my tunes. As I write this letter, my tunes are going right next to me. At the restaurant I work at, the owner's always turning down the kitchen radio because I'm constantly cranking it up and singing away. While painting, I have my boombox at my side, like a faithful dog. You also asked about television. In essence, I quit TV about two years ago. I discovered what a waste of time it was when I could be instead on the phone or out with friends. The only things on TV I do watch are cable movie channels, if there's a good movie. I like MTV, because I love music videos, especially when they have the Headbangers Ball. Three hours of heavy metal videos. The only other thing I watch is Jeopardy. I love a good challenge of the wits. Let's see, you also asked about reading. Well, I used to read a lot, from the 4th grade to the 11th grade. I used to polish off one or two novels a week, mostly horror novels like Stephen King or other gruesome novels. Now, though, I limit my reading because I don't have as much free time. The only books I've read recently are about nutrition one about body physiology and brain function. Magazines I frequently read include Omni, Psychology Today, Muscle and Fitness, Discover, and Science Digest. 
Let's see, other things that I enjoy are deep philosophical discussions, spending time with close friends, reading the funnies, dancing, anything spontaneous and crazy, being in love, although it's only happened once, talking on the phone, playing with an animal of any kind, and reading your letters. Let's see, my dislikes are being broke, big cities, my car needing repairs, fake people, feta cheese, applesauce, apple juice, and I guess my reluctancy more outgoing at times. I visited mom a couple days ago, and we had a long talk, mostly about her past. I understand a lot more, but I know it will be a while before I know the majority of it, but one step at a time. It is almost 1.30 a.m., and I have to bump out a double shift tomorrow. So my bed and I should do a little reminiscing. Keep your head up. And keep doing great things. With love. And that's the end of the excerpts from letters that cover my first year of college. And my first summer after college.